Amen. Hey, let's do this. Let's keep in that um, space, that time. God's given us a beautiful day today. Let's just take a moment just to take a deep breath where you're sitting. You can grab your Bible and turn to Jonah if you'd like, but as soon as you would, would you just quiet yourself and uh, just take a moment, maybe for the first time today, just to breathe. Just remember that God is with us in this moment. He longs to be with you in this moment. So just take a few breaths. Just try to center and be conscious of His love toward you. Father, you're so good to us. We celebrate who you are as we just sang. We celebrate your unconditional love to us. So we know that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation and there's nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth or anywhere in this universe that can separate us from the love that you have toward us. Your beloved children. So, We just ask for a sense of your nearness and we ask for a yieldedness to you in the work that you want to do. We ask that we would hear from you that these words would um, just breathe life into us. That your presence, your nearness is for our good. So we just ask that we would be tuned in this evening to you. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Glad to see y'all. Tonight we're going to look at a psalm. We're going to look at a psalm that falls right in the middle of the book of Jonah. One of the reasons I love Jonah is because Jonah just lines up so beautifully. And so tonight we're going to close out the first half of this little book. And so it comes right in the middle and it's a psalm. It's a psalm and it's a prayer that comes from this guy Jonah. And I love Psalms. To me, Psalms are part of my daily diet. It's a big prayer book in the Old Testament. And the Psalms are so great because the Psalms are so universal. And so one of my favorite musicians uh, here locally is a guy named Doug Burr. And Doug uh, got this idea and knew how universal the Psalms are. And so Doug, in one of his records... He's a Christian, but he doesn't make Christian music, whatever Christian music is. I don't know how music can follow Jesus, but that's another time. Um, He wrote and recorded a record of psalms. And so he, he did this, and he didn't just like make them sound neat and fit. He took them verbatim from the pages of a Bible translation, put music to them, and it was birthed actually out of lullabies that he would sing to his kids. And so when Amy and I would go, one of our favorite things to do is to go to bars and hear music. And the first time we heard him play this record in its entirety was in Deep Ellum in a bar. And it was whiskey clanging and beer bottles clanging. And it was so beautiful to see everybody sit down and shut up and hear these words. Then we saw him in an art museum, totally acoustic, unplugged. And eventually, years later, we even saw them in a church. But really, the coolest thing was just to see them in these places where God surely was, but 
wasn't accustomed to worshiping God. And so when he was asked about the record, you know, why would you do this? You know, as a local artist trying to be credible, why would you do these old crazy words from this old book that all these crazy Christians like? And he said that there's such a depth and a richness and a universality to these words. And if you read the Psalms, you know what I mean, because David is a totally unstable guy. I mean, let's just be honest. This guy is manic and depressed a lot of times. And guess what? So are we. And guess what? He brought it all before God. And that's why the Psalms are so great. And that's why they're so universal, because we can read these things. And he says, I'm drowning. I'm dying. I'm surrounded by enemies. Psalm 6, this dude says that every night he's weeping to the point where his couch, his bed is swimming. That's powerful. That's crazy. And he bears it all out there to God. We can relate to Psalms, even if we can't relate to the fact that in other Psalms, David talks about how his enemies are coming at him, how they're surrounded at his gate. I don't know about your house, but I don't have people just spying on me, ready to kill me. This is nuts, but we still can relate. Why? Because we can relate because we've all been in places of desperation. We've all been in places of bitterness. We've all been in places of exuberance and joy. God, thank you because you've brought me out of this. It's universal. The Psalms attest to this. And so right in the middle of this book of Jonah, tonight we're going to look at a Psalm. And this Psalm, just like any of the others you find, is born out of a place that we can all know. Even though we've probably never experienced what Jonah will experience physically, the Psalms are universal and Jonah's words are universal because it speaks to the universal condition that we can sometimes drown and despair and feel like all is lost. So we're not just going to look at a Psalm tonight, we're going to look at two miracles. So brace yourself because tonight we are going to talk about that old fish of this book. But the bigger miracle, okay, because the text presents the fish as a pretty wild miracle, but the bigger miracle is this. The biggest miracle is that God rescues people, that the God of heaven can rescue you from your deepest hell. That's the trick. That's what we're going to see. So who is God? What is God like? He's a God who is on mission, who is merciful, and is waiting for you to cry out from the depths in order that he might rescue you and raise you to life with him and get you back on the path. But it's all contingent upon this crying out, okay? So we're going to look at the fish. We're going to look at the miracle of God rescuing us. And we're going to look here at a psalm. But before we look at Jonah's psalm, I want us to actually look at uh, Psalm 107. So if you could, I told you to turn to Jonah, psych, put your finger there, flip back. It's not hard to miss the psalms. And turn, if you have a Bible, to Psalm 107. We're going to have some of it up on the screen, so fear not. You'll be able to follow along. Psalm 107, where we were last week, was another group of people. We couldn't figure out 
and maybe we've not been on a boat in the midst of a storm, but we can attest and, and find some commonality with the guys we met last week, these sailors, because they were panicked. They were terrified. Have you ever been afraid? Yes. Yes, we've been afraid. And so these sailors were crying out, right? Because they were afraid. And we see that their fear drove them to a deeper and deeper recognition of Jonah's God. We looked at these unlikely neighbors, right? Because they happened to be in Jonah's path. They became neighbors to Jonah. And Jonah's life and web affected them. And this fear that they experienced from the storm that God had sent was actually not just an issue of judgment for Jonah's sin. It became a beautiful opportunity for God to show mercy And they cried out and they found him. We didn't have a chance to look at this last week, but I want you to see Psalm 107. We're thinking about the sailors. We're thinking about Jonah. All these people who cried out. The author of the Psalm 107 says right at the gate in verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And so the whole psalm, he goes and says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south, some that wandered, some were hungry, some were thirsty. But look at verse 6. You see the chorus of this psalm. Then they, what? Cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He goes on, he says, hey, let these people, let these people. Then verse 13, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he, what? Saved them from their distress. He rescued those sailors last week. And look what the psalmist writes here in Psalm 107. Beginning now, this will be on the screen in verse 23. Hey, some of you guys who went on the sea in ships, they were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, His wonderful deeds in the deep. For He spoke and He stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. So they on this boat mounted up to the heavens and then they went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. So they reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. Then what? Verse 28. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. That's not all. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. And his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people. And praise him in the council of the elders. God's mercy even extended to these Gentile sailors who began by crying out to this God and that God and that God and that God because they had a dozen or more of them. And then their fear as it melted and the ship went up and the ship went down. Eventually they said, who's responsible? Jonah, who's your God? Yahweh, Yahweh, you started this, stop this. And they cried out to God. This is a psalm that's, you know, perhaps talking about these sailors, perhaps not. 
It's pretty wild coincidence otherwise, right? But the universality of the Psalms, whether it's Doug Burr singing at the bars or the modern art gallery or even churches, we can all experience the times when we were rocked by a storm or rocked by some darkness and sadness. And we can also experience the exuberance of feeling like, God, somehow you've rescued me. We all experience this. But watch, the distinction, okay, what distinguishes God's people, the sailors who became God's people, Jonah, who we're going to see, decides to act like one of God's people tonight. What distinguishes God's people is this, they cry out to God. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But take a walk through Barnes and Noble and find the self-help book section and find all the ways that you can pull yourself up from the bootstraps and find the strength within to rescue and get out of the pit in which you found yourself. How many people you sit across at the coffee shop and says, be this, do this, do this, fix this. The distinguishing mark of God's people is that they cry out to someone beyond themselves with the faintest desperate plea that he might even do something about it, though he can't be seen. So God is pursuing Jonah. And the question that I've, that I've had thus far is as Jonah's running and he's going this far, we know that he's going to wind up in Nineveh. But my question throughout the whole book has been this. When is this guy going to cry out and get his stuff together? What is it going to take to get him from the depths that we're going to see tonight and back on the path to Nineveh? What is it? When does Jonah repent? Well, tonight's message is titled A Prayer from Rock Bottom. We're looking at this psalm and we're going to see a prayer from rock bottom. What is rock bottom? You've heard the term. So I'm just going to say that rock bottom in Jonah's life was something that he brought on himself. He finds himself in this period of sin and rebellion and he's running and he's going further and further away from God and he's sinking further and further down. That he's, God is intervening as we saw in the storm. God is pursuing Jonah and he's wanting him to get on the path. But Jonah's sin has led him into a spiral where he's spiraling out of relationship with God, out of relationship with others, and he's going to find himself tossed overboard and down, down he's going, refusing at this point to cry out to God. Jonah's going to hit rock bottom and he hits rock bottom because he brought himself to rock bottom. God is giving him opportunity and opportunity and opportunity, but he's still sliding down, we're going to see. Maybe your rock bottom is not self-induced. Maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe you feel like you are headed down to rock bottom and you just think, oh, today's going to be the day that just one more thing is going to drop itself on me. One of my buddies is from Mexico in Monterey and he has a Spanish phrase that I won't even begin to try and say, but it translates, hey dude, how are you doing today? He says, well, just waiting on the dog to pee on me. It's so crass, but it's like it's been so bad, he's just waiting for that dog to run up and hike his leg. So now we're all awake. Mm, I got an amen from Drew in the back. Let that dog pee on you now. Sometimes rock bottom is just the sense that we find ourselves in a storm around us, and we wonder where God is, and maybe God 
is still trying to get our attention. We looked at storms last week. Maybe we feel like it wasn't sin that brought it on, but maybe it's just the sin and chaos of this world and what God is still trying to do if he's not the direct cause of it. Maybe God is using these circumstances for you to finally look beyond yourself and look up and cry out to him. And this is what's going on with Jonah. He's gonna hit rock bottom. And this is crazy. When does Jonah repent? What changes his mind? He's still sinning. He's still fleeing. And what happens on the boat last week? He says, I'd rather die. All these sailors are praying, right? And we're not told that Jonah prays yet. He says, well, just toss me overboard, which in that kind of storm meant, well, just kill me. And so he says, I'd rather die. And so there's something that happens between verse 16, which we finished last week, and verse 17, which we're going to begin tonight. There's something that happens in between where Jonah, when rock bottom is nearing and we're going to see him descend, whether we bring it on or whether circumstances surround us, what God is doing is using this to lead us to repentance. So sometime between verse 16 and sometime between verse 17, Jonah, who said, I'd rather die, toss me overboard, gets tossed and says, I want to live, help. Look real quick at verse two of chapter two. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. How? Look at chapter one, verse 17, just before that. Jonah gets tossed, the sailors reorient themselves to the God of the Hebrews, and Jonah says, help, in verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So what happened is this. God has seen Jonah get tossed. He's been trying to reorient him. And Jonah, at the very last minute, the very last second, presumably says, God, help me. And God, I think, with a smile on his face, says, okay, dude, we've gone this far. What else am I supposed to do? There's no wood in the middle of the freaking Mediterranean Sea, but there is a big old fish. You get it. Here we go. And he gets swallowed up by this fish. And Jonah will see it as rescue. Jonah sees the fish as a lifeboat. The narrator of Jonah, whether or not he was actually swallowed by a fish, the text lets us know that this is a miraculous, insane thing. But it is surely God's rescue, not God's punishment. So right at the beginning... The misconception is that God was still angry at Jonah and he sends a fish to eat him. But that could not be further from the truth. The reality is that God will not steamroll his people and he waits to the last moment, even before death. Jonah is ostensibly on his deathbed in the murky grave and at some point he cries out and so the Lord, the text says, provides a fish and it swallows Jonah and he was in there for three days and three nights. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me if it really happened. But the text want us to say it really happened. And that's fine, because guess what? I believe that God can do whatever he wants, okay? But hold on to the fish talk. We're gonna talk about that later. We wanna talk about the psalm first. 
we want to stay focused on Jonah for just a minute. We're going to come back to the fish. We're going to come back to that miracle. We're going to come back to that three days and three nights stint and what that has to do with Jonah. And so we look then, suffice it to say right now that this is rescue. And so it's going to lead Jonah to pray, the text says, for the first time Jonah prays to chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one, from inside the fish. So evidently he's conscious. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Sailors asked him, who's your God? And now the narrator says, he prayed to the Lord his God. Evidently he's been arguing with God, as we'll see later in chapter four, verse two. He refers to talking with God before. But this is the first time in the whole of chapter 1, and now beginning in verse 2, that we're told that Jonah finally cries out. And this is what he says. We're going to see Jonah's psalm now, okay? The psalm comes in four sections, and it looks just like a lot of the psalms you'll find in uh, the actual book of Psalms. It follows the same kind of formula. It uses similar kinds of language, because guess what? We live and breathe the culture that surrounds us, And we use these phrases, we use these things that are common to us. And so Jonah composes this psalm. And here's what he says. First, we see the summary statement. This is very common in psalms. Just like we looked at Psalm 107 earlier, it says, hey, let us give thanks to the Lord. And it sets up the summary of everything that's going to follow. And so Jonah does this. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the Deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. This is a summary statement. God, I called to you. God, you answered me. Then the next phrase, he says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. The realm of the dead is a place known to the Hebrew mind. Before we get the New Testament, before we get all of this stuff, the Sheol is what it's called. Sheol is like the underworld, the realm of the dead. And it's a shadowy place that really we want to think that all the Jewish people in the Old Testament thought exactly like we did. But the truth is in the Old Testament, they didn't have a fully formed idea of what life after death looked like, okay? We've had thousands of years and more revelation in this book, the Bible. We've had Jesus, right? The dawn of revelation to tell us. He's giving us eternal life. He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. Well, in the Old Testament and the Psalms, you find in a lot of places, they're saying, help me, deliver me from this place, Sheol, the realm of the dead. And it was this place in which they thought that really, I think everybody went And it was a shadowy kind of place. I'm not saying it's hell. I'm not saying it's heaven. I'm just saying that the Old Testament context, let's let Jonah and David and these people in the Psalms define this for us. And their understanding was that they went down to the realms of the dead. So Jonah in this place truly believes, I was right there on my deathbed ready to go, my last breath, and what happens? You listen to my cry. Verse 3. That was the summary statement. Now he's going to give us the descent. He's going to give us a report of his crisis, okay? This is total psalm way of doing it. He's going to give us all the bad stuff that happened. Verse 3 through 6, the very beginning of verse 6. This is a report of his crisis, okay? 
You hurled me into the depths. And that's funny because we're told that the sailors did. But somehow Jonah sees that God is even at work, working and moving. I don't think forcing them, but he sees God's activity in their actions being hurled into the depths. But don't forget the summary statement because he's calling out and God is rescuing. Because even in the storm, it looked really dangerous, it looked really judgment, but guess what? There's a sign of grace that comes provided what? You cry out, provided you turn to him. So in all of this chaos, God is trying to divert him and get his attention. So Jonah sees his activity in verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. That's a psalm phrase that we find in places like Psalm 42, I believe. Then Jonah says this, okay? Watch this descent. This is the report of his crisis. So right now he said, I've been tossed overboard and I'm gone down into the sea. Waves are swirling. The tide is carrying me. I am hopelessly lost. But this wasn't the deepest he's gone and it's not the deepest he will yet go. He's still got rock bottom to hit, okay? But we see way back in chapter one, we haven't talked about it yet because now is where it really comes into focus. Look back at chapter one, verse three. When Jonah runs is when he actually begins his descent. He actually doesn't start sinking then in chapter two. He starts sinking here in chapter three. He went down to Joppa. Then he finds a ship He pays the ferry, he hops to Tarshish, the storm comes, look at the end of verse 5. Then Jonah had gone down below deck, and he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. He went down south to Joppa, he gets onto a boat, he goes underneath, and now he gets tossed off, and he's going to be sinking further and further down. Jonah's reporting that he is going down, the tide is getting him, he's experiencing a physical issue. And then in verse 4, it's not only that deep, it goes to a spiritual depth. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Again, who ran? But Jonah sees this as watch. Also in verse 3 of chapter 1, we talked about a few weeks ago that when Jonah ran away from the Lord, he ran from his face. The face was this sense of intimacy. The face was this relationship. And so when Jonah runs and he experiences it as you have banished me, God, you've banished me from your sight. Again, just like with the sailors and him saying, God, you hurled me. He experiences, even though he was the one who ran, right? It's so wrapped up because what he experiences is this idea that God's face is no longer fixed on Jonah. But here's the old Baptist preacher question. Who moved? We always ask where God is. Well, who moved? 
I say it in a silly voice, but the reality is Jonah at this point with the tide experiences not only the physical issues, he's got this descent into the spiritual issue. I feel like I'm banished. I feel like I've been forsaken, maybe. Hang on to that. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Again, where is his perspective? Where is his face? Where can he be? I think really other translations have how will I look again towards your holy temple? It's an addition, but they read that as like, he's despairing. I've been banished. How can I get back? And if that's not worse, he goes on, verses five in the beginning of six, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Whatever chance he had, it's surely lost now. And then verse six, he says, After he's gone down to Joppa, he's gone on the boat, he's gone down below deck, and now finally he reaches rock bottom. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. You're imagining that correctly. He sees, he imagines the deepest place he can imagine is where the roots find, where the mountains sink all the way down, and the earth beneath barred me in forever. Surely, I'm done. I've gone way too far. I fled and I fled and I ran and I ran. And if you heard me last week and if you heard me the week before and it didn't make sense when I kept saying no matter how far you've run, you think you've gone too far, you think you've burned too many bridges, you think you're so far deep into depression and addiction and despair and, and just all kinds of mess. I'm swimming in debt. I'm swimming in a loss of intimacy in relationships and friendships. I'm at the roots of the mountain. And not only that, the earth that's down there has captured me, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. It shifts drastically because God had been trying to reorient Jonah. God is trying to reorient you. And he will not steamroll you. Sometimes we see people in a cycle of destruction and we say, please, please. And what it takes is rock bottom. And God, I think, is laboring with creation. He's even laboring with these wicked, violent, lost cause Ninevites. But he's taking a chance. Just maybe they'll turn. Just maybe, even though Jonah is crying out and bubbles are coming up in the depths of the sea, just maybe. And the reality is this, no matter how far you go, no matter how deep down you are, God lives at rock bottom. And so what ought to distinguish the people that have heard the invitation, come to me, find life. He's right there and he's waiting, but he's waiting for you to cry out. So the miracle is not that he's reciting this prayer in a fish, okay? The fish gets two verses in our section tonight. God gets the rest of it. God dealing with Jonah gets the rest of it. Because the miracle is this. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
following the patterns of this world, you were just like the rest of them, marching down to destruction, sign you up and give you an ID that says Nineveh, Assyria, because you were just marching along, minding your own business. But God, Ephesians 2, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, made you alive in Christ because it is by grace you have been saved. Even when you were dead, even when you were, the text says, enemies. So when he asks us to love his enemies, he's not asking to do something that he is not himself willing to do. I've heard it preached, God hates you. And I say, but God loved us when we were enemies, when we were separated, when we were sinking. And we can come in here feeling like the tide is engulfing us and we forget the but God part. I forget the but God part. I walk around looking at all the waves and the seaweed wrapped around my dang head. And I forget that while we were far, while we were enemies, while we were gone and lost, that's when Christ died for you. Well, I've got to perform and do this right, and he loves me more on Tuesday. But when I screwed up on Wednesday, but God, who is rich in mercy, he's got so much mercy, he doesn't know what to do with it except give it to you more and more and more. But we run from his face. We run and we sink and we hit the bottom. And the sad reality is that billions of people will hit rock bottom and die at rock bottom because they've not heard or humbled enough to cry out to the God who can deliver us from the depths of our sin and the hell that we make in our lives and the hell that's been made on our lives. God, who's rich in mercy, rescues us and brings us to life. Jonah, we've been bagging on you, but this guy writes this, thinks of this, prays this, and says, that's enough. And he is the perfect example of what I've been trying to say the last few weeks, that God is on mission pursuing you, and when you turn, he's right there. He was right there when all was lost, but God brought his life up from the pit. God can bring your life up from this pit. And you don't believe me. Oh, that you would believe and see that God is after you and loves you. Oh, that you would hear him say, do you believe that I love you? That, do you believe that I'm here ready for you? This is a prodigal son and he has blown it and blown it big and God still rescued him. The pagans on the boat were crying out and looking in all the wrong places and God heard them. There is no difference in the prayer of a pagan or the prayer of a prophet, so long as they cry out to the only God who can rescue us from the pit. And that's what he did.
verse 7, is the really central focus. That's the chorus to his psalm. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. The problem is we don't remember you, Lord. So even when our life is ebbing away, when we have brought so much death, would we remember you and find life? And here's the miracle. My prayer rose from that depth up to Jerusalem, up to your holy temple, up to your presence. That's a miracle. God can hear the prayers in the crack houses in South Dallas. He hears the prayers in the forgotten rooms in India where they're enslaved, drugged up, forced to have sex with people. God can hear those prayers. He's right there. This holy temple is not as far as we think. Verse 8, Jonah, he's remembered God, he's cried out to God, and here's where that repentance has really taken shape. We know in this church that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's not enough to just say, man, I really screwed up. Mm, That stinks. Well, I'm going to keep doing that. No, it's a change of mind that actually motivates action. That's repentance in the scriptures. So he's going to say, God, let me get back on the right path in verse 8 and 9. We looked at the summary at the beginning. We looked at the report of crisis, 3 to the beginning of 6a. And we just looked at the report of rescue, 6 and 7. And finally, we see the praise. Those who cling to worthless idols, they turn away from God's love for them. They don't know what they're doing. They're crying out to the wrong things. They're looking in the wrong places. And they're turning away from God's love for them. He's there. He's on mission. He's pursuing them. And they've turned away. But I, so in contrast to these people, I was one of those people. But God, and now verse 9, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. He's going to do two things. He's going to do three things, but two things of note. He will sacrifice to you, he says, and what I have vowed, I will make good. You want to send me to Nineveh? You want me to go to Nineveh? I'll go to Nineveh. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Chapter one ended with a bunch of pagan dudes that were far off that cried out to God, and what did they do? Two things. Look at the end of 16. They sacrificed and made vows. Chapter 2 ends with a prophet who was far away. And he turned and cried out to God and he says, I'm going to sacrifice and what I vowed, I'm going to make good. And Jonah is in the belly of a fish for three days, for three nights. He's in this weird submarine fish boat. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. My goodness, I would be freaked out if I was in the warm. (laughs) That's so gross. Man, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And he's so confident that God was with the fish, working with the fish to rescue him. He recites this beautiful psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. He's going to make it out the other end. Well, sure enough, he does. Look at verse 10. The Lord who provided the fish in verse 17, watch, now commands the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land, and that fish was probably happy to do so because who wants a brick of a man sitting in your stomach for three days and for three nights? 
So the biggest miracle, the miracle that we're going to return to and I wanted to camp out in more of our time tonight is that God rescues us from the depths, provided we cry out to him, provided we run to him. But we've got this fish, this other miracle. I told you before, I'll tell you again, it's not about a fish. But the fish is a huge hang-up for a lot of people. The fish is massive. I told you that the fish is a big hang-up for somebody in my family who says, I can't believe the Bible because I can't believe a dude can shack up inside a fish for three days and three nights. And I told you that people have done the scientific studies that maybe it's possible, perhaps unconsciously, but maybe, that's great. Believe it. I'm not being like patronizing. I'm saying, can God have a person survive inside a fish? Yes. So here's the trick. Here's the catch. The bigger question is this. Can God really act so powerfully in such a way as to do these kind of miraculous things? The text makes no bones about it. It's it's presenting these fantastic things as if this is very much integral to Jonah's process in ministry. So can God perform miracles? Well, let me ask you this. Can God raise Jesus from the dead? I mentioned Barnes & Noble earlier. I worked at Barnes & Noble for several years in college, and I happened upon something I'd never heard about. Maybe you haven't either. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, in his life, had a series of Gospels that he literally cut and pasted, not in Microsoft Word, but literally took a knife and cut out his Gospels And what he cut out was all the miraculous things that Jesus did. And he cut out all of the spiritual things that he said, being born of heaven and and all these kinds of supernatural things. He cut all of those things out. And what he did was he took what was left and he made a much shorter gospel. And he had the four gospels and he had them glued together. And it was called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He never wanted it published. But if you asked him if he was a Christian, he was very keen to what Jesus said. He wasn't so keen on what Jesus did. And so what we're left with, it was published after his death, is a Jesus, a Savior, who could preach the good news, but couldn't back any of it up. He could say healing has come, but he couldn't actually back it up. And what caused such a stir in this region was probably not just the message that said repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Probably what the biggest issue was was the fact that this guy was having an authority and a power behind it that they had never seen because a lot of guys had preached that God's kingdom has come. But not a lot of guys fed 5,000 people. And surely no one raised from a tomb that was sealed off in property of Caesar after having been dead for three days and three nights. Jesus, in our Gospels, saw something about Jonah, something about this, this idea of Jonah's mission that he so was wrapped up in. And we find in our Gospels, Jesus talking about the sign of Jonah. Would you turn real quick? We're going to wrap up here because we've got to talk about it and this is the best place to talk about it, okay? Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. So we're talking about a fish. We're talking about the God who can do and can have power and influence over the wind. Why not have it over a fish, right? 
So the question is, why did Jonah stay for three days and three nights, right? Well, some have speculated that that's um, a mythology in the ancient Near East, that it took a three-day journey and a three-night journey to get to the underworld. There's nothing in the Old Testament, I think, that backs that up remotely. So really, I just don't know that we have any idea why the book of Jonah says he was there for three days and three nights. But I think we might have some clue. Jesus latched onto it, and we can look here in Matthew chapter 12. It's mentioned a few times, three times, twice in Matthew, once in Luke. We're just going to look at Matthew's. If you want to look it up, uh, Luke's parallel, he's got it in a different order. It's in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. What Jesus is doing is he's, um, he's, con- he's, he's been teaching He's performed these miraculous things. And so then in verse 38, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What they're asking is basically, prove you are who you say you are. Back it up. But the the trouble is, and what Jesus is going to show, and what the Pharisees and the teachers are going to show throughout the Gospels is that they've already made up their mind, okay? Whatever Jesus can do or did do, it didn't work, and it wasn't going to work, they'd already made up their mind. So they come and say, they want to see a sign. They want to see the validation that he is God's Messiah, that he is, has the authority to do what he does, and Jesus is going to just go straight to the heart, and he's going to talk about the sign of Jonah. You want a sign? And he answered, verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, okay? The people that Jesus is talking to, and what are they going to do? Condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Okay? The Ninevites heard the preaching of Jonah and they repented. And they're going to condemn this generation. Why? Because Jesus says, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And he talks about a queen of the south who came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he says, something even greater than Solomon is here. But what of this sign of Jonah? Okay, we're almost to the end. This is important to talk about because Jesus has taken something about this fact that Jonah was delivered by God and remained in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. There's two similarities that Jesus draws, okay? First, both of them are quote-unquote buried, okay? And then what? Appear alive, okay? Jesus sees the ministry of Jonah. He sees him remaining in the belly. And then he's alive. It's not an exact correlation, right? Because Jonah was snatched before he died. He was rescued. But the correlation I think Jesus is making is this. He's drawing attention to God's messenger who is out of uh, condition for a while, out of commission for a while, but now appears alive. Jesus says, he was in the belly of the fish. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth. So there's at least this similarity that he's speaking to a point where he's going to be buried and out of commission and then yet appear alive. Here's a second similarity. When he appears alive, Jonah hops on land and Jonah brings nothing to Nineveh but himself alive. Jesus 
comes out of the belly of the earth alive. What sign do you want except the fact that I come to you and Jonah preaches judgment coming. Jesus preaches up out of the water of his baptism and through the day he dies on the cross and even now after his resurrection appearing alive, he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus brings nothing with him in the form of a sign today except the fact that he is the king and you can repent and get on program with him or you can stand with that wicked and adulterous generation who sees Jesus alive and says, I want nothing to do with him. He makes it more clear in Luke. He talks about how just as Jonah was for the Ninevites, I am to this generation. I say judgment's coming, is what Jonah says. Jesus, judgment's coming. Okay, stay with me. The sign of Jonah, at the very least, what's going on is this. When the Ninevites stand at the end of the age, They stand with the men who had seen Jesus. He had not given any sign save for whatever this sign of Jonah is. That he had a similarity that he was buried and is now alive. He's preaching repent just like Jonah preached repent. But the difference is this. The Ninevites actually repented. Jesus routinely condemns the self-righteous who refuse to cry out. And he humbles, excuse me, he elevates those who have humbled themselves. He condemns the self-righteous, just like these Ninevites will. You saw and you didn't turn. He'll elevate those who get to a place of rock bottom where they can truly come and cry out. This generation, Jesus says, won't repent, but the Gentile sailors did in Jonah. The wicked Ninevites, your enemies, repented. And at the end of the age, Jesus is going to stand who faced the greatest rock bottom, okay? When Jonah says, I've been banished from your sight, Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken? So we don't just have universality in the Psalms. We don't just have universality with Jonah. We have universality with the king of the universe who felt God's face turned away from him. But what was the last things he said? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus goes to the grave for three days, for three nights. A symbol. Three days, three nights. Into the ground and Sunday morning, on the third day, he's raised because God is reliable and trustworthy to remove you from the pit. Okay? You may not be in a tomb, but it feels like a tomb. You may not be drowning, but you feel like you're drowning. God is a God who is rescuing you from the pit, provided you cry out to him. Let's pray. Father, would you remind us that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would bring forgiveness here and healing here because we pray that in your kindness you would lead us to repentance. We pray that you would lead us to a place where we can cry out to you because you're all we've got. And would we find that you are reliable and powerful and you can rescue us. Be with us now. Amen.